0: Welcome to the podcast for First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights. These are the
1: audio versions of the sermons preached each Sunday. I hope you enjoy. Now, let us continue our worship by reading our first scripture reading, Exodus 25 10 through 16. They shall make an ark of acacia wood, it shall be two and a half cubits long, a cubit and a half wide, and a cubit and a half high. You shall overlay it with pure gold, inside and outside you shall overlay it, and you shall make a molding of gold upon it all around. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet, two rings on the one side of it and two rings on the other side. You shall make poles of akisha wood and overlay them with gold, and you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark by which to carry the ark. The pole shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. You shall put into the ark the covenant that I shall give you. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
0: Our second scripture reading today comes from Exodus 25, verses 17 through 22. Then you shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its width. You shall make two cherubim of gold. You shall make them of hammered work at the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub at the one end and one cherub at the other. One piece with the mercy seat, you shall make the cherubim at its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings. They shall face one to another. The faces of the cherubim shall be turned toward the mercy seat. You shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the covenant that I shall give you. There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the covenant, I will deliver to you all my commands for the Israelites. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we have come to our last sermon in this sermon series on Exodus, Discovering Our Promised Land. And the reason we've been looking at the book of Exodus is because it speaks beautifully to the circumstances in which we find ourselves today, the circumstances of a pandemic, how we've been having to stay apart from each other and how we can stay connected to each other in the midst of all of this. And these stories, they speak beautifully to the connection that we have with each other as individuals, as a church and as a community at large. And so the goal of this series has been for us to really explore the new and bold direction we need to be taking as Christians if we want to discover our promised land and remain relevant in the 21st century. So throughout this series, we have been following Moses and the Hebrew people. We've been following them as they have tried to make their way out of slavery, as they have been wandering through the wilderness And I hate to break it to you, but unfortunately, we are not going to get to see the Hebrew people make it into the promised land. If we were going to do that, then we would have to go all the way through the rest of the book of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and Joshua. And as much as I love the Old Testament, I know you don't love it that much. So, suffice it to say, they do make it to the promised land. So rather than talking about going into the promised land and how they make it there, I'd like to focus on something else in the story of Exodus that I think is more appropriate for our purposes in this series. I want to talk to you about the Ark of the Covenant. Now, I know many of you are familiar with the Ark of the Covenant, but for those of you who are not, the Ark of the Covenant is just a big fancy box in which the Hebrew people would store the two tablets of the Ten Commandments. And the Ark of the Covenant is said to have some special powers associated with it. So, for example, there is a man named Uzzah who is carrying the box and he accidentally drops it and he is struck dead. At another point, they come to the Jordan River and when the Ark of the Covenant touches the Jordan, it actually parts it like the Red Sea so that the Hebrew people can get across onto dry land. And if you've ever watched Indiana Jones, well, you probably know that the Ark of the Covenant contains ghosts and if you look at them, they will melt your face. So there's lots of magical properties associated with this particular box. And I think it's important to understand that for me, I actually don't think that these particular features, the more magical, mystical features, are what make this particular box important. What I think makes the Ark of the Covenant important is a small little detail in its construction that we often overlook. But this detail, it speaks so beautifully to the God who we worship, and it also tells us a lot about what God expects of us as Christians. Now, I want you to take a look. This is a rendering of what the Ark of the Covenant might have looked like. We actually don't know. Even though we read the instructions for how you're supposed to put it together, we don't know exactly what it would have looked like. And that's because the truth is, we don't know how they thought about certain things back in the day, how they would have constructed it. So anytime you see an artistic rendering, which is what you're seeing right here, there is some liberties taking and putting it together. This is particularly true when it comes to the lid. On the lid, the instructions say that there are two cherubs who are supposed to be facing one to the other. They're supposed to be facing each other, and their wings are supposed to be sprawled across the top. Now, that is not the detail that I think is so important for the Ark of the Covenant. The detail that I find to be important is that in the middle of the lid, there is supposed to be a seat on which God is supposed to be present. Now, if we look at the Ark again, you will notice that there is no actual seat there. And the reason why is because as we talked about earlier in this series, the Hebrew people believed that God was everywhere and in everything, and so God cannot be reduced to any one point. And that's why when you see any artistic rendering of the Ark of the Covenant, you will see no physical chair there. But it is from this seat that God is supposed to pass, innocence and guilt upon the Hebrew people when they have been accused of breaking God's law. Now to understand why this particular seat is so profound and really speaks to who we are as Christians and helps us to understand who God is, I need to take some time to really illuminate this for you. And I can't do it by simply explaining it. I actually need to do it through story because the story is gonna help us understand why this seat in the middle of the Ark really means so very much. And to do this, I want to tell you a story about a furniture store found in Winona, Mississippi. So Winona, Mississippi is a small little town, has about 5,000 people in it. And there is a furniture store there called Tardy Furniture. And Tardy Furniture was founded shortly after World War II by a man named Tom Tardy. Now, if you walked into Tardy Furniture, you would see Tom there, and you would also see Bertha. And Bertha was an interior designer, and what you would do is you would invite her to your house. You'd come in, take a look at everything, and she would be able to match whatever the decor was in your house with a new dining room set that you might want to buy, or a new couch, or a new side table. She was very much known for her taste, and people went to her all the time. And so Tom and Bertha, they were a good team. And when Tom's wife died, he ended up marrying Bertha, and she became Bertha Tardy, and they ran the store together. Well, this store was a staple of Winona, Mississippi for many decades until July 16, 1996. A former employee walked into Tardy Furniture and he found that four people had been murdered. Bertha Tardy, along with three employees, Robert Golden, Carmen Rigby, and Derek Stewart. Here in the picture, you see his name's Bobo. He was only 16 years old at the time of the murders, all four of them had been fatally shot. Now, a quadruple murder in the middle of a small town like this was a big deal. And so the police, they very quickly set to work on gathering evidence and interviewing witnesses. And as a result of all those interviews, they started to narrow down their suspect list and they eventually zeroed in on a man named Curtis Flowers. So Curtis Flowers, he had been fired from Tardy Furniture 13 days earlier, 13 days prior to the murders. He had been seen by many eyewitnesses at the front of Tardy Furniture on the day of the murders. And even though the weapon that was used in the murders was never recovered, the bullets were from a 380 pistol, and Curtis's uncle, had his 380 pistol stolen from his car on the same day as the murder. So even though they had interviewed and looked at other people, they narrowed it down, and it felt like the evidence pointed directly towards Curtis Flowers. So Curtis Flowers was arrested and charged with first-degree murder. Now... The prosecutor in this case was a man named Doug Evans. Doug Evans, he was the district attorney for the Mississippi Fifth Circuit Court District. Doug Evans had grown up in the area. In fact, he graduated from high school in 1970. So he came of age in the midst of the civil rights movement. And to give you a sense of what Winona was like during the civil rights movement, the white citizens of Winona have the dubious distinction of being some of the most violent toward protesters. So when civil rights protesters came through town, they were arrested, they were placed in prison cells, and they were beaten with impunity. And in fact, Martin Luther King Jr., who came through Winona, there was an assassination attempt on his life by a man named Ryan Lynch, who was a barber, and outspoken white supremacist. The only... Luther King Jr. survived is because of his bodyguard. So what happens is Doug Evans, he comes of age there, he ends up going to college, and he eventually starts working for the police department. After that 10 year period, he goes to law school, and he starts working at a bunch of different lawyer jobs. And in 1991, he starts to run, he wants to run for the district attorney's seat. And he runs on a platform of being tough on crime. He says that he's going to seek out convictions against criminals. He's gonna make sure to bring the indictments quickly to get those guilty verdicts. And he talks a lot about how he wants to have compassion for the victims of these crimes. And he had a slogan that he used, which was fair, but firm. So he was elected in 1991. 1996 is when the tardy furniture murders take place. So this was the first real test of, Doug Evans' time as a prosecutor was the first real test of that slogan, and he wanted to prove to his constituents that they had made the right choice by electing him as their district attorney. So when he takes this to court, he ends up making an interesting decision. He decides that he is only going to focus on prosecuting Curtis Flowers for the murder of Bertha Tardy, because that's where the motive is strongest. So what he said was, is that Curtis Flowers, he had been fired from his job by Bertha Tardy and he was angry about this and he needed money. So he went down to the store to rob the store and he ended up killing all four people in order to get rid of the witnesses. And so he had a lot of evidence to support that this was the case. The first piece of evidence that he talked about was that there was gunpowder residue found on Curtis Flowers' hands. The second piece of evidence that he discussed is that there was a bloody shoe print found at the scene of the crime. And it was a 10 Phila Grant Hill shoe, very specific kind of shoe. And when they went into Curtis Flowers' house, what they found was a shoe box for a 10 and a half Fila Grant Hill. They also, when they went in there, they found that there were $235 left in the headboard of his bed, and there was $400 that had been stolen from the store when the murders had taken place. And then probably the icing on the cake was that two of Curtis's cellmates testified that he had confessed to them that he had not only robbed the store, but committed the murders. Now, I think it's very important that you understand that through all of this, he had maintained his innocence. The first thing he said was that he actually had a pretty good relationship with Bertha Tardy, and that she hadn't actually fired him. He just stopped showing up to work, and so she had to find somebody to replace him. And then, in fact, she had been very kind to him, even though he hadn't been a very good employee to her. To the Grant Hill Fila shoe, he said that those shoes were not his. Those belonged to his girlfriend's son. When it came to the residue on his hand, he said that he had been using fireworks the day before the murders, and that's where that would have come from. He also talked about how he had never confessed to his cellmates that he had committed these crimes. And so, The jury, they take all of this information, they go into deliberations, and they come back with a verdict of guilty, and they sentence Curtis Flowers to death. Now, that is where this story should have ended. Should have been over at that point. Curtis Flowers gets convicted. We move on. But that is not where this story ends. It is not at all where it ends, because even though at that point in time, What happened was the people of Winona, they were very relieved that Curtis Flowers had been convicted and Doug Evans was hailed as a hero. There is a lot more winding story to this. So essentially what happens is after Curtis Flowers' conviction, his lawyers, they file an appeal. Very common that this happens in murder trials where the lawyers will file an appeal, they will try to get the verdict overturned. Now, in 99% of these appeals, they are simply rejected outright. There's really no reason to look at it. But in this particular appeal, that is not what happened. So the Mississippi Supreme Court actually found in favor of Curtis Flowers. And what they said is that Doug Evans had engaged in prosecutorial misconduct by presenting evidence in all four murders, rather than just focusing on the one murder of Bertha Tardy, and that he had had asked questions that had no basis in fact. And so they remanded the case to be retried again. And so what happens is Doug Evans, he retries the case for a second time. So again, he presents all of the evidence surrounding the murders, and the jury deliberates, and they come back with a verdict of guilty, and they sentence Curtis Flowers to death. And again, Curtis Flowers' lawyers, they appeal, and once again, the Mississippi Supreme Court comes back and they find in favor of Curtis Flowers. They find that Doug Evans has committed prosecutorial misconduct. This time, what they say is that he has actually committed many of the same violations he did in the first trial. He used many of the same tactics. And so, as a result, they come back and they say that this time, the difference is they're not going to remand it for retrial, but they're gonna overturn the conviction, which, frankly, might sound like a really good thing for Curtis Flowers, but that is actually not the case because overturning the conviction is different from getting an acquittal. So to be acquitted of a crime means that you cannot be retried for that crime again because that is double jeopardy. But to have your conviction overturned means it's at the discretion of the prosecutor as to whether he or she desires to prosecute the case again. And as you might imagine, Doug Evans decided to retry the case for a third time. So again, he presents all the evidence, and the jury deliberates, and they come back with a verdict of guilty, and they sentence him to death. And once again, Curtis Flowers lawyers, they file an appeal, and again, the Mississippi Supreme Court finds in favor of Curtis Flowers. This time, however, they come back with a very different reason for doing so. This time, they find that Doug Evans has committed a Batson violation. Now for those of you who are not familiar with a Batson violation, it comes from a 1986 Supreme Court case, Batson v. Kentucky. And in this case, what they determined is that a jury, a juror cannot be removed from the jury pool on the basis of race, ethnicity, or sex. And so Doug Evans, he had been removing African American jurors from the jury pool so that they wouldn't have the opportunity to be able to be part of the jury with the Curtis Flowers case. And he didn't just do it in the third trial. So in the first trial, Curtis Flowers, he was tried by an all-white jury. In the second trial, he was tried by 11 white and one black jurors. And in the third trial, he was tried again by 11 white and one black juror. Now, what's interesting about this is because they live in Winona, Mississippi, it is an area that is 45% black. And so close to half of the jurors should have been black. But that wasn't the case. He wasn't being tried by a jury of his peers. And so the Mississippi Supreme Court, they overturned the conviction once again. And of course, this allowed Doug Evans to try the case again. So he tries it for a fourth time. And again, he starts, keeping African-Americans off of the jury, except in the fourth case, there are too many black people in the jury pool. And so he ends up with seven white and five black jurors. And this time what happens is it's a different outcome. It's a hung jury, which results in a mistrial. Now a mistrial is very similar to an overturned conviction, which means that the prosecutor, if he or she wants to, can try the case again. And as you might imagine, he ends up trying the case for a fifth time. And once again, Doug Evans, he's getting people off of the out of the jury box on the basis of their race. Again, there are too many black jurors, so he ends up with nine whites and three black jurors, and once again, <clears throat> it ends in a mistrial, a hung jury. Now, you have to realize that through all of this, Curtis Flowers is either sitting on death row, or he's in jail awaiting trial. As long as Doug Evans wants to try the case, Curtis Flowers will be behind bars. And so he tries the case for an unprecedented six times, and this time the jury falls in favor of Doug Evans. He gets 11 white and one black juror, and they find him, and he ends up being sentenced to death. This time, however, the Mississippi Supreme Court does not overturn the conviction. They uphold it, and so this conviction stands as it was after the sixth trial. Now, the fact that this case was tried six separate times, it caught the attention of a group of reporters, a team of reporters who came in to Winona, and they wanted to understand a little bit more about what happened. In fact, they literally moved to Winona, for a year because they wanted to go back they wanted to look at the evidence they wanted to re-interview witnesses and what they found was that there was a lot of inconsistencies in the case and a lot of things that didn't end up so for instance they spoke to many of the witnesses who, who said they had seen curtis flowers at the store and Almost all of them across the board said that they had not seen Curtis Flowers on the day of the murder. They had seen Curtis Flowers, but not on that particular day. They also looked at various pieces of evidence, and what they found was that there are pieces of evidence that had been either misconstrued or excluded, that hadn't been handed over to the defense. They also found that the motive didn't really add up. So. Curtis Flowers was a man who had never had any type of run-in with the law prior to this point in his life. He had no instances of violent behavior whatsoever. And so it seemed odd that his first crime would be a quadruple homicide. And then finally, the biggest thing that they found, and the most damaging piece of evidence, is they talked to a man named Odell Holman. Now, Odell Holman, he had testified in four of Curtis's trials that Curtis had confessed to him that he was the one who had committed the Tardy tardy Furniture murders. And so they were eventually able to get in touch with Odell Holman. And so these reporters, they asked him about his testimony. And what he said is that at the time that he had made this arrangement to testify, he had some drug charges that were hanging over him. And Doug Evans came to him and he said, look, if you're willing to testify that Curtis Flowers confessed to you about these murders, I can make those drug charges go away. And so the reporters, they asked Odell Hellman, well, did you ever speak to Curtis Flowers? And was that testimony true? And Odell Holman said, no, no, it was all fantasy. Just a bunch of lies that I made up. And Doug Evans knew it was a bunch of lies. But because they had made this deal, now every time Odell Holman got in trouble, Doug Evans would swoop in and he'd either make the charges go away or <clears throat> he would see to it that the charges were greatly reduced. And what this did is it allowed Odell Holman to engage in more and more violent behavior until eventually, he went on a murder spree. He ended up shooting five people, three of them died. He killed his girlfriend, his girlfriend's mother, and a random stranger. Now, what's sad about this is that if Odell had actually been charged with the crimes he had committed, he would have been put away a long ago. He wouldn't have been able to commit those murders, But because he had made this deal with Doug Evans, he was allowed to be out. And Doug Evans even went in to help him after these murders, which, by the way, were the worst since the Tardy Furniture Murders that had occurred in 1996. He swooped in, and he made sure that Odell did not get the death penalty. And the reason why he did this is because he wanted to make sure that Odell could testify again in case Curtis Flowers and the trial went again to a seventh trial now, after all of this, after all this evidence comes out, this allows for Curtis's lawyers to go to the Supreme Court of the United States. They, they make a plea to the Supreme Court because, of course, the Mississippi Supreme Court had upheld the conviction. Now, normally, it's a very small chance that they would take Curtis's case. In fact, almost no chance at all. But they did take it. And in a ruling, seven to two, they found in favor of Curtis Flowers. The Supreme Court said that Evans had engaged in prosecutorial misconduct, striking African-American jurors from the jury box, and he had used 41 of 42 challenges to get black jurors out of the jury box. So the Supreme Court of the United States of America overturned the conviction against Curtis Flowers. And so as a result, Doug Evans has the opportunity that if he wants to, he can try the case for a seven time. Now, thankfully the Attorney General of Mississippi stepped in, took a look at the evidence, and believed that there was not enough evidence to actually bring Curtis Flowers to trial for this. And so they ended up dismissing the case without prejudice, which means that Curtis Flowers cannot be tried for these murders ever again. And so after 23 years on death row for a crime he did not commit, Curtis Flowers was finally a free man. Now, why have I spent all this time telling you about this case? Because it illustrates to us just how imperfect our criminal justice system is. Curtis Flowers, he was the victim of a racist prosecutor who was willing to put an innocent man behind bars and work with hardened criminals to do so because he could not find the actual murderer. And because he was unwilling to admit that he had the wrong guy. And just in case you think that this is an isolated incident, it is not. The Innocence Project has helped to exonerate some 375 individuals, 21 of whom were on death row for crimes they did not commit. And so this brings us back to the Ark of the Covenant and this seat on which God sits in order to determine the guilt and innocence of the Hebrew people. Now, very often when people talk about this seat, they call it the seat of judgment or the judgment seat, which is actually not what it's called. It's actually referred to as the mercy seat. Now, this is very, very important that we understand that it is a mercy seat and not a seat of judgment because what this tells us is that when God sits in judgment of human beings, when God is looking at all the mistakes that we have made in our lives. That God's orientation towards us is one of mercy. Now, why does this matter? Why is it that God's orientation towards us is mercy and not vengeance? And I think we have to ask this question. I think it's very important to try to understand why is it that God's justice revolves around mercy and not retribution? And I think the answer is very simple. All you need to do is look at Curtis Flowers. As I said just a few seconds ago, our justice system is imperfect. There are people who commit crimes who never go to prison for them. And then there are people like Curtis Flowers who never commit a crime and they spend decades behind bars. Now, why does this happen? It happens because our criminal justice system is flawed and it's flawed because humans are flawed. And this is just true across the board of anything that humans are involved in. The Christian religion, it is flawed because humans are a part of it. Our politics are flawed because humans are a part of it. Our criminal justice system is flawed because humans are a part of it. And I find that people have real trouble with this idea. I think people want to believe that the criminal justice system, it does a good job all the time. But that is simply not true because humans make mistakes all the time. And so because of this, we need to approach our criminal justice system as something that constantly needs to be reformed, in the same way that we need to approach our religion as something that constantly needs to be reformed. We need to constantly be looking at the way that we are distributing justice, because the truth is there is no real justice in this world. There's no real justice in this world because humans are flawed, and there's no real justice in this world because justice is, frankly, simply impossible. Even if you were to find the actual person who committed all the murders at the Tardy Furniture Store and put them in prison and put them to death, the good thing about that would be they couldn't hurt anybody else, but that's not real justice. Real justice would be bringing those people back from the dead, which you cannot do. And so because our justice is so flawed, we looked to God to actually implement justice on our behalf. And many of us revel in the idea that an evil person will see the retribution of God. God's gonna send them to hell and make them burn forever, right? But that's actually not God's justice. That's our justice. God's justice is what we see in the Ark of the Covenant. God's justice is mercy. That is our God. And so God would rather than seek retribution, God would rather forgive us. God would rather cover over our sins because God understands that love is the only way to make things right. And that is how I want to end this particular series. I want to end on a note of love. For the last nine weeks, we've been talking about all of the various ways that we as Christians need to be different than we are right now if we want to discover our promised land. We've talked about all the ways that we need to change and adapt to be relevant in a world that increasingly sees us as irrelevant. And what we're talking about today is perhaps the most important lesson of all. And so if you don't remember anything that I said for the last nine weeks, just remember this one point. In a world where justice is elusive and hurt and pain are the norm, love and mercy are the only ways to heal those wounds. And so what I truly believe that we need to do as Christians, what is so very important, is that we bring that love and mercy into the world. So when we come across someone who has been treated unfairly, somebody who has been given a raw deer, Curtis Flowers is a great example, but when you come across that person, we treat that person with love, mercy, and compassion. And we do that because that's what makes our religion special. That's what makes Christianity so unique, is that we offer hope to the hopeless. We offer love to those who feel unloved. We offer forgiveness to those who feel that they are unforgivable. We do these things because we live in an imperfect world and we understand that the world around us is one that needs mercy and compassion and love. And so, if we can bring those into the world, then we can actually create that promised land that we have talked about. Those are the most important qualities and it's right there. It's right under our feet. All we need to do is have the courage to make it a reality. Amen. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.firstpresah.org for more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Pres family of faith.